Hello everybody and welcome back to the Jack Throwful Show. We are back in the studio this week for episode 8. What a crazy Formula 1 weekend it was. Lots to get into this week, so let's get started. And of course, we must start with the finale of the Formula 1 World Championship. Absolutely incredible scenes all around, really. I mean, both for Formula 1 and Formula 2 this weekend was fascinating to watch. I think it's best off we start with Formula 2, actually, just to sort of contextualise the achievement of a Formula 1 World Championship. You know, this is what all the Formula 2 guys are working towards, and everything they seek to achieve was found by Max Verstappen this weekend. You know, it's important to realise that these Formula 2 guys work for years. You know, they're not all like Oscar Piastri. They can't all come in and win it on their first year. These Formula 3, Formula 2 guys grind it out two, three years in each of these junior championships just to get a chance at a top seat in Formula 1. Verstappen was actually promoted directly from Formula 3, I think a, l- a little bit similar to uh, the way Kimi Raikkonen was brought into the sport in terms of being a really significant uh, young driver who has skipped forward many categories that others weren't able to do. To reflect back, though, on this year's Formula 2 championship, I mean, even from the start, Piastri had emerged as a strong contender after Mick Schumacher was able to take the crown last year, there being a gap in that Prima team alongside Robert Schwartzman, who was another championship contender. For Oscar Piastri to come in and really take advantage of uh, the gap in the championship, his Formula 3 championship, his experience, all the lessons he'd learned from Formula 3 to bring that into a completely new style of car, a very angry, loud V6 engine, you know, shooting flames out the back, more powerful than Formula 3, more downforce, higher cornering speed, a different style of racing overall. You know, the Formula 3 style of racing is uh, not only incredible to watch and quite similar to what we see in Moto3 as well, the junior bike racing categories. It's a really manic style of racing where the level of driving standards just simply isn't quite as high as what you're going to see in the top categories. The consequence of that then is that there are more mistakes that are going to be made and the consequences of making a mistake not only are going to be slightly less significant because the quality of the field isn't as high, but there's also then more time to be gained at each corner because the people around you are making those mistakes all the time you have to be the one that takes advantage of that and can emerge to be the top quality driver, top quality rider that you need to be in that category. For Piastri then to be able to enter Formula 2 with such pressure on him as the reigning Formula 3 world champion to, you know, come in there and have to prove yourself as a worthy Formula 3 world champion to put up some sort of title challenge. No one really expected him to win it in the first year as much as he was with the Prima team that have put out Mick Schumacher. They've allowed Charles Leclerc to take that title, of course. Even though he was with that team, to still clinch it in your debut Formula 2 season is is a really brilliant achievement. And winning two out of the three races this weekend in Abu Dhabi, Piastri was really able to put a a closing uh, statement on that championship and say, look, it wasn't just a lucky race. It was every qualifying, every format you've been able to throw at me, every track design. He has been able to come out on top and produce serious performances at each of those variations of track. You know, Formula 2 has been all over the world this year, just like Formula 1. Produced so many different challenges for the drivers and especially in those junior categories, the significance of those challenges is much higher. A lot of the guys, it's the first time they're going to these tracks. And that's really, really important for Piastri in terms of driver development and in terms of eventually finding a path to Formula One to be able to bring, you know, not only the experience of driving all across the world and adapting to those different cars, but the experience of having success at doing that is really, really valuable and also quite intimidating, I think, for the other young drivers in Formula One to know that Look, as much as they've been able to move on to Formula One and and find a seat, find success in Formula One, this guy Piastri has achieved more than any of them have. You know, of course, we've seen the Formula Two champions, Russell and Leclerc and Grosjean, even Formula Two champion, Hamilton, Formula Two champion, many, many more throughout the paddock, of course. But to see 
someone with Piastri's achievements come in so strongly and with so much momentum, I think it's going to be quite intimidating when he eventually does get a seat. Of course, we've already talked about how before Piastri doesn't have a seat next year. You know, there's no option for Piastri to come into Formula One next year. There's no room. He's a part of the Alpine Driver Academy. Kramer traditionally as a Formula 2 team have been associated with the Ferrari Driver Academy, uh, like they were with Leclerc and, and Mick Schumacher. But to move away then from uh, the Ferrari links and instead uh, take on Piastri, a member of that Alpine Driver Academy, not only could it suggest a, a potential link for the future between those two teams and maybe a move away from Ferrari for Prima, but also it speaks to the pure quality of Piastri's driving in that you know he was able to come from outside of the Ferrari Driver Academy, earn his spot in that Prima team, and then convert it into a championship win within a year and against an extremely, extremely talented field of drivers with more experience than him in Formula 2. He was able to come out on top and maintain that pace advantage across the world. And then, of course, with that, we, we should discuss the weekend of Guan Yu Zhou. Uh, Guan Yu Zhou has found a seat and will be replacing Antonio Giovinazzi uh, alongside Valtteri Bottas. So that'll be quite thrilling to watch as well. I think Zhou hasn't really been able to capitalize his uh, opportunities in the same way that Piastri has this year. His car hasn't had quite the same natural pace advantage. But despite his car not having the exact same pace advantage that Oscar Piastri and the Prima team are able to convert every weekend, I feel like Piastri would still have been able to do more than Joe if Piastri was in Joe's current seat at the time, if you see what I mean. I feel like while Joe has not necessarily been gifted the natural advantage and the natural supremacy of the car that the Prima team is able to deliver, the UNI Virtuosi team that Joe does drive for you and I virtuosi are consistently in the top five of the Formula 2 team's championship. And uh, despite that leveled advantage not being there, I think Joe's performance doesn't really speak to deserving of a Formula 1 seat. And I, as I said last week, I'm, I'm ready to be proven wrong on that. I want to see the best driver in the world. And I, I hope that Joe will be able to convert that, of course. One thing that is key with Joe's appointment to Formula 1 is the, um, the Chinese market and the way of, of not only... Formula One reaching out to the American market as, as it you know, wishes to create the similar culture it has in Europe, in North America, and of course, reinstate its popularity in South America, but also to move over to China, to move back over to, um, of course, Malaysia used to host a Grand Prix, it was a really important part of the racing world. Malaysia, still an essential part of MotoGP. As F1 looks to move to those sort of markets to seek to grow its fan base globally, not only in the sort of richer European nations, but to move across to all over the world and to try and bring in fans from as many places as possible and really increase this sort of access to racing. I think the move to more international drivers from parts of the world that aren't traditionally associated with Formula One, like China. Of course, the Chinese Grand Prix, uh, we've missed out the last two years, but looking to make a return as soon as possible, the Chinese Grand Prix, very cool track. And I think having Zhou be a part of the sport and being able to represent China at the Chinese Grand Prix. It's going to be a really special moment. Of course, we can always reflect on the moments in which we've seen Ferrari win at Monza. And when you see that element of national pride come into Formula One, it's something that can be extremely motivational. You know, looking back on uh, Monaco this year, Charles Leclerc putting the car on pole and then crashing, which secured his pole, but then cause of the crash meant that his gearbox failed on the way to the grid on Sunday and he couldn't start that race and Leclerc was unable to convert this sort of pole at the Monaco Grand Prix his home country to lose that was really emotional for him and we saw that in the broadcast so I think similar sort of elements of that could be uh, brought up when we see Joe compete at the Chinese Grand Prix and a similar element of when we see Brazilian drivers compete in Brazil or when we will see Yuki Tsunoda next year convert 
hopefully a good performance at the Japanese Grand Prix if the Alpha Tauri has been able to maintain the form they're in at the moment. I do think, though, that the discussion of Formula 2 in general has, to quite a large extent, taken a bit of a backseat this week due to the nature of uh, the Formula 1 Grand Prix that we saw at the same weekend. Much less controversy in Formula 2, much less uh, bickering and team politics. The scale just isn't quite as large, and obviously the stakes are high when you're looking at drives in Formula 1, but it's just not quite the same level. And the drivers, you know, they're not full public figures. It's a huge step to move from a Formula 2 driver to a Formula 1 driver. While Formula 2, the attendance, you know, because they run the races at Grand Prix weekends, the attendance can end up being quite high. But what you don't see really is is the same level of fame for the drivers. And we'll see maybe how Joe has been able to adjust to that. You know, we saw Mazepin and Sonoda and Schumacher this year. They didn't really adjust to it in, in quite the same way because the attendance wasn't super high at some of the Grand Prix. They were in a sort of half COVID situation where at points they were allowed out of the paddock, but most of the time they were sort of bubbled up in uh, sequestered little parts of, of social groups. They weren't really able to go out and explore the world like you know promoted Formula 2 drivers of, uh, of the last few years have been able to. Of course, we spoke a little bit last week about the uh, racing style of Formula 2 and the way in which Formula 2 style racing differs from Formula 1. You know, it, it does extrapolate a little bit from the style of Formula 3 in terms of the level of mistakes and the increased level of chaos. You know, you get more safety cars, which in turn then does breed more safety cars. And uh, really, it's the frequency of the mistakes that sort of differentiates the category and, and then the way that consequentially is going to impact the decisions of tactics and the style of the racing is going to be heavily influenced by that and the tactics of when you're going to pit when the tires are going to be advantageous you know it, it's always going to be a little bit more up in the air in formula 2 a little bit more uncertain and the increased level of uncertainty then sort of translates into excitement and jeopardy which is then of course what we like to see in uh, in all categories of racing across the world that level of jeopardy that level of having to see someone be pushed to the edge of what physical and mental achievement can look like and to have that be rewarded with a win and to have that be rewarded over the year with a world championship. I think with Formula 2 then, you know, we spoke a little bit about it last week and, and the role that it's playing in, in global motorsport. It's, um, it's one that I suppose is quite variable. You have figures like Liam Lawson, who was competitive in the Formula 2 championship this year and was definitely able to convert wins and podiums when the opportunities came his way. But, you know, alongside that, Lawson was also competing in the German Touring Car Championship and, and the DTM. He was able to basically win that effectively in all the eyes of the spectators. He was able to win that championship, despite what happened in the final race. You know, we'll get into final day championship deciding collisions later on this episode. But um, for Lawson, he, you know, got that DTM championship unjustly taken away from him. That was all done alongside competing in a, a full Formula 2 schedule, which is, is hugely impressive. And I think, you know, not only does it speak to the quality of Lawson as a driver, but it also speaks to the level of skill that it takes to compete as a motorsport driver that isn't just a pay driver. It's not a driver that's coming in with a big book of sponsors ready to bankroll any racing activity that that driver chooses. You know, it's a, a driver that is in demand from the teams, a driver the teams will pay to come and drive their car because of their quality. And the ability to diversify your category choices and to not only race open wheel cars, but to race GT Ferraris, to race endurance cars, to race off-road even, like we've seen with Jamie Chadwick, you know, going from the W Series to Extreme E. We'll touch on Extreme E later in this episode, but I think, yeah, that ability to convert wins and opportunities and, and find speed 
with different machinery and different categories like Liam Lawson was able to do this year, neither championship can be assigned as, as his at the end of the day. He didn't win them. He's not the German touring car champion for this year. He's not the Formula 2 champion. And while Piastri was able to take the headlines of being the crowned Formula 2 champion, and, and then, of course, alongside that, we've seen Guan Yu Zhou earn that promotion to Formula 1, potentially not directly through his on-track success, but obviously his on-track quality is part of the reason Joe has been promoted to Formula One. It's just not quite the full story. But alongside that, in a season where Joe and Piastri have been able to convert certain opportunities that have come their way for whatever reason, we've seen Liam Lawson seek to diversify his resume effectively to become a more attractive proposition as a development driver or a reserve driver for a top team. You know, when they're looking at someone who has been able to apply the skill of driving a car around the track quickly to multiple categories and to prove, you know, there's no such thing as a fluke here. You are a, an educated driver. You understand how cars work. You understand how to pull time out of, a, out of a track. You understand how to adapt your driving style to different machinery. Not only is winning Formula 2 going to be something that's attractive to top motorsport teams? I think that level of diversification and the level of being multi-talented in uh, converting opportunities in different machinery, that is an equally attractive proposition. So we may see Liam Lawson make the Formula 1 uh, Formula One journey probably into the AlphaTauri seat at some point if Sonoda's not able to convert his opportunity that he's been given the next two years. I don't really see Pierre Gasly going anywhere. Um, unfortunately for Gasly while he's been able to really cement himself as a, a driver for that AlphaTauri team, the AlphaTauri team chiefly functions as a development program for more young drivers. We've seen Verstappen go on to win a world championship. We've seen Ricardo move from Toro Rosso to Red Bull to Renault to McLaren. We've seen Carlos Sainz do a similar thing from the Red Bull Driver Academy. Carlos Sainz, of course, Max Verstappen's first teammate in the sport and, uh, the man who was able to convert third position at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix this weekend. But the Red Bull Driver Academy has been able to produce such a huge class of drivers. You know, Alex Albon moving to Williams next year to replace George Russell. I mean, replacing George Russell was an incredibly uh, challenging task. I'm not sure how Albon's going to fare in that. And we also don't know where the Williams car is going to be in terms of the, uh, the pecking order of the teams. Could be right up there. You never know. They were right up there at the start of the hybrid regulations. But I see, alongside Piastri getting promoted from Formula 2 in the next few years, I see Lawson probably being promoted alongside that in some capacity, whether it is into that AlphaTauri seat or potentially even into a new team in Formula 1. You know, these the new cost cap restrictions have been incorporated purely to make Formula 1 a more attractive investment. And as we see, you know, more quality from the young drivers, we see more fair promotions of people like Piastri and people like Lawson. More and more then, Formula One becomes an attractive proposition for an investor. You know, Formula One's golden ages, when we look back across history, seem to be the years where we had 12 teams in the sport, you know, 24 cars. It's just more racing. It's more, more access to the sport. You know, more people are allowed in every year. You may end up with more of a gap between the top and bottom teams if you're able to do that. But I think incorporating, you know, both the new cost cap regulations and the new aerodynamic regulations where you're encouraging that closer racing, you know, that is even further doubling down as well as Formula One's appeal, you know, growing appeal to the international markets. 
all the numbers are, are pointing in the right direction, I suppose, for a new Formula One investor. So potentially Gasly could move to a new team. I mean, you know, there are no present rumors of a, a fully new entrant to Formula One. Unfortunately, for an investor, the most attractive proposition is to buy a team that already exists, right? To buy a team that is losing often and maybe looking to sell off some of its debt or can't, you know, can't pay its dues and is going out of business soon. You buy a team like that and you convert it into a winner. That can be an extremely profitable investment. The most famous of which is the way Ross Braun was able to take up all the losing staff at Honda and the way that Honda was no longer funding any of its Formula One activity after the 2008 financial crisis. They were just looking to get out completely. Ross Braun comes in, buys the team for a nominal fee of a pound, acquires all of its debt, all of its assets, um, and, you know, is able to run the team, is able to find a gap in those regulations, take Honda from what was a solid midfield team in 2008, competitive, good staff, good quality facilities, but not the most professional team, not the most succeeding, you know, they're not McLaren, they're not Ferrari, but Braun was able to take those guys and convert them into a world championship winning team which ended up then being bought by Mercedes and Daimler and ended up being the foundation upon the present Mercedes dynasty was built off of that Braun team. So that, I think, really is, is the most attractive fairy tale proposition to an investor opposed to coming in as a fully new entrant, building your own engine facilities or buying most of your parts from another team and having to exist in that way, more of a sort of Haas-based approach. Of course, Haas still did take over I think Marussia or HRT or something of uh, a different team that had lost their sponsorship and lost their access to the sport has did take over some of their resources, but it entered more as looking to be a, a completely new style of team. And we saw Haas go up and down a little bit. Of course, we know Haas at the moment are at the back of the grid, but they were able to convert consistent top 10 finishes some years across the history of, of the last what five or six years they've been in the sport. Haas have been able to have quite positive results at times. Uh, but people have very short memories. People have extremely, extremely short memories in this sport. And it's hard to remember some of those times. But ideally, we would get a couple new teams coming in. Maybe we will wait and see. We will wait and see indeed. But I think that's plenty dancing around the main headlines this week. Let's get into all the action from the Abu Dhabi Formula One Grand Prix that we saw this weekend. Absolutely incredible race. Drama throughout on the race, off track, huge, huge headlines all around. So let's get into it. So last week, Formula One arrives in Abu Dhabi looking to present a, a brilliant racing product. You know, we were welcoming the deal at the start of the weekend uh, that the broadcast was going to be shown on Channel 4 in the UK alongside Sky Sports, which I know just in terms of personal research and talking to people about the sport really opened it up. I think, you know, the level of access that a Sky One subscription model promotes isn't really one that is is looking at the best outcomes. You know, it's creating premium content. It's giving Sky a large budget to work with in terms of their income and a large budget to create content with, of course. Not the same level of budget that can be created with an advertising-only model, but the way Sky is able to run not only a pay-per-view model alongside an advertising model is uh, going to be highly lucrative for them. But what it's not going to do, really is open the sport up to a massive audience. And we've seen with something like the Netflix show, of course, Netflix, again, is a monthly subscription, but it's something that a lot of people tend to have just as one of their normal goods. Not a lot of people in the country own Netflix. It's not something that they're purchasing directly for its sporting content, 
But then when Formula One is able to look at something like Netflix, which is platform that most of the country has access to, create something like its Drive to Survive documentary and convert those fans that are seeing that documentary into lifelong F1 fans and to get them watching the racing sessions, it's going to be highly valuable. So then when you're able to show racing sessions on public broadcast television in the UK, when you're going to put it on every TV in the country, in every pub in the country, all around the country, people are watching this finale race. It's really, really going to help the popularity. And I think with something we definitely saw that weekend was a lot of people watching Formula One for the first time. And that has its advantages and its disadvantages. For that race to be someone's first Formula One race is is quite challenging. And I think a little bit like we spoke about last week in terms of F1 looking to create a racing product alongside the other racing products that exist in the motorsport global market. F1, of course, the biggest and the highest budget and uh, most popular. But when you're opening it up and when you have that opportunity to present Formula One to all of the UK and I'm sure around the world, I know especially in the States, the viewing numbers were amazing, you know, highest they've ever been. But when you're opening up the sport to that many people, a bit like Jeddah, where you have a really complicated system of rules and regulations pushing people around, we saw a a similar impact in, in Abu Dhabi, but we'll get into that later. I think one thing that I do want to say now, though, before we get into the sort of nitty gritty details of the conflict and, and the regulations that were brought up in the Abu Dhabi race is that I don't think, in my opinion at least, it was quite as controversial as it's being made out to be. I think before we talk about directly the incidents, it must be put in the context of, well, look, the broadcasters that are presenting you these races and the firms that are incentivized to keep you watching their incentive isn't always to look at creating a clear and simple answer i mean it it is in some cases some of the ex-driver professionals are able to consolidate all the complicated parts of issues and and deliver clear messages that are explainable to people it's a it's a real skill that we do see in some journalists and i'm not trying to discredit them by saying that but i'm saying more broadly the incentive overall for the media company is to create controversy and to poke the flames, you know, and to inspire division between groups and to inspire, yeah, to inspire controversy. Because once you have something, you know, once you have an issue that everyone gets to throw in a comment on and everyone gets to have an opinion on, and you're going to promote this discussion of what do you think about this? Here's all our opinions on it. And here's why we think the other people are wrong. And then they'll argue back against you all while that debate is going on then, the platform that is hosting the debate and the platform that is encouraging that debate to continue and not encouraging it to come to a clear and fair and justified conclusion, they're instead encouraging it to just carry on and to encourage this controversy of, will Verstappen be disqualified from the World Championship like Michael Schumacher was in 97? Or will Hamilton be judged to be over the line in the way he took the turn seven runoff area? All these little things where they are isolated incidents and they are things that must be judged correctly, a lot of them are complicated and do, of course, require discussion and analysis to be worked out correctly. And and I'm not trying to avoid thorough discussion by saying this, but it just must be noted that the media that is presenting you all of these races, they don't want the answer to be clear and evident and obvious because then you'd be able to work it out for yourself and you wouldn't need their commentators and their post-race shows and their interviews to tell you what was going on. You know, it's always through the light of, well, here's what we think. And especially in the UK, as much as 
they have been actively trying to work against it and have been sort of self-deprecatingly bringing it up in the commentary, there is going to be that bias towards Lewis Hamilton wanting to win. You know, some of the people on the broadcast, like Martin Brundle, were extremely personally tied to Lewis, and there's no problem with that at all. You know, Lewis is an incredible, incredible man, and he's changed Formula One forever. Will always have that impact and must be celebrated for that. But I think over the history of the incidents this season, what we've seen from comparing the Dutch broadcast to the British broadcast is that two-way bias. You know, the Dutch broadcasters are looking at their first ever potential Dutch Formula One world champion. He's the son of Jos Verstappen, who is very popular in the Netherlands as a Formula One driver. Jos Verstappen's son is now challenging, long-standing British champion. For them, every incident is Hamilton's fault. And for the British media, you know, Silverstone was a racing incident. But both ways don't really seem to be painting a very accurate picture. And both ways aren't really looking to give you a clear conclusion. They're looking to give you the conclusion that best serves their profit margins, which is fine. I have no obligation to them running a a private business and delivering Formula One media. But I think taking a step back from the entire discussion when you're looking at the level of behavior and quality of the debate that we're seeing in a lot of the F1 fan base at the moment, people need to take a step back and they need to realize what's really going on. What's really being presented to them is a platform that seeks to, you know, get you attached to a driver to to stoke the controversy and, and to have the criticism blown up as much as it can to be, you know, Hamilton saying... You that the race was manipulated and Verstappen saying that Latifi helped him out suddenly becomes, well, the F1 stewards are part of a giant conspiracy to rig every Formula One world championship that's ever happened and you can't trust anything the stewards say for the rest of time. You know, people are calling for resignations over this and this is just not, not an accurate portrayal of the picture. But in terms of the detail of the actual racing throughout the weekend, I think the best place to start, you know, would simply be Friday. Um, We saw the Formula One practice sessions mixed in with the F2 qualifying on Friday like they normally are. And this weekend, it was all about, you know, every minute of the session could have been a minute that was deciding the world championship. Every single opportunity you have this weekend is coming with an opportunity cost. It's coming at a point where every second matters. If you are choosing to do something in your hour of practice... You know, there's so much else you could be choosing to do. You better have a good reason to be doing the thing that you're doing. Everything must be efficient. Everything must be justified because wasted time at this point is going to cost you not only tens of millions of dollars in sponsorship money and writing your name into the history books, but it's going to cost you that world championship. And there's a certain sort of imperceptibility to the value of that world championship for a Formula One team. Red Bull did win four in a row, but it's not about that. At this point, it's when the gap to their last championship is so long and Mercedes have dominated the sport, taking over from that Red Bull domination for Red Bull to then come back at this end of regulations era. For Red Bull to come back through that and to come back through their time of losing Sebastian Vettel, losing Mark Webber in those end of the V8 years and Daniel Kvyat not really being the driver they need, Daniel Ricciardo suddenly being this emerging star in 2014. Verstappen coming in in 2016, winning his first ever race with Red Bull in the Spanish Grand Prix in 2016. Verstappen being this young star. 
then Verstappen and Ricardo together seem an incredible driver pairing. They seem to match directly with what Red Bull want to see in their drivers of that aggression, that, you know, winning of exciting races, races where you've got rain or races where the strategy is going to make the difference and their supremacy of strategy and tactics can be shown to be greater than Mercedes. We've seen that at points throughout maybe 2016, 17, 18. Ricardo and, and Verstappen together, the quality of their driver pairing being evident to everyone in the paddock, then Ricardo jumps ship. Ricardo doesn't like the way he's being treated by Red Bull. He thinks that the opportunities for his career might be better off to go go back to a midfield team, you know, beat your teammate at a midfield team and reinstate your position as one of the sport's top drivers to not only show that you can convert in a top team, but to show that you can bring up a mid-level team to be competitive on many occasions. Arguably, that's you know equally as big of an achievement, equally as challenging for a driver to try and pull resources and motivate a team around you. Ricardo has done that a little bit with Renault, of course. He jumped ship from Renault after two years and, and moved on then to McLaren, where he is now and where they were able to deliver a one-two at the Italian Grand Prix this year. So not only is that speaking to the quality of the Red Bull driver development program, but it's also speaking to the driver that Red Bull lost when Ricardo left them. And to have to deal with that for Red Bull to deal with that loss of a driver and then have Gasly come in and replace him and have Albon come in and replace Gasly and to have Perez come in and replace Albon. All throughout that, they were building a championship winning car and they were nurturing the driver development of Max Verstappen, who had then been with them for so long since Verstappen joined the sport, training up this guy to become Hamilton's closest rival. Red Bull really deserved that achievement. And in the Friday practice session, what we saw was... We saw Mercedes and Red Bull going back and forth and with them both seeking to maximize this opportunity cost and to maximize the efficiency of these practice sessions, you know, the detail at which the timing boards were being studied was incredibly minute and every little change of wing and every little change of part was monitored. Everyone wanted to get their predictions in to what was going to happen this weekend, right? So then we move on to qualifying and we move on to Max Verstappen taking pole in qualifying, primarily through the Use of teamwork, again, like we've spoken about with Red Bull putting a good team together and putting a fully diversified team of engineers and managers and strategists and pit stop guys and drivers, putting that all together to work out that going down the back straight into the new corner, turn nine, I believe, your opportunity of getting a fast qualifying time is going to be vastly increased if you can get a car to tow you down that straight and to get into that car's slipstream like Max Verstappen was looking to do on Sergio Perez and like Max Verstappen successfully achieved with Sergio Perez, if you can maximize the impact of that toe down the straight, that's going to give you a huge advantage in qualifying. That observation must have come maybe from the drivers in practice. It could have come from a tactic man in the team or a, someone who you know had, had experience of that track. I'm not sure what the origin of, of that line of thinking was. Of course, we've seen many tracks this year the idea of getting a toe in qualifying is not a new one. It's not something that's just come out this weekend. But the idea that that toe can be the deciding margin in the final qualifying session of a world championship, not only is it an incredibly bold call from the two, you know, there could have been an incident there. It could have slowed down Max if it wasn't executed properly. It could have wasted three minutes of Q3. Could have been a really, really uh, bad mistake if it wasn't executed to perfection. But it was executed to perfection and Verstappen was able to take pole Mercedes didn't try to emulate Red Bull's towing system. They tried to go out on their own pace with their super engine and with the performance we expected from Mercedes. 
even with the toe, it looked like Red Bull had a slight margin, but the margin at which they were ended up being able to take pole position was over three-tenths of a second. It was really, really significant. In terms of looking to analyse the race and pull out the biggest headlines, qualifying was the easy part. I mean, to have, you know, the teammates work together, Perez, after a tricky year at the start with Red Bull, not quite being on the pace of Verstappen, as we've seen with all of Verstappen's previous teammates, we've seen Perez really grow into that role of, of, yeah, look, he's a second driver, but we've seen, like, the quality of Bottas, you know? The second driver is not an easy role. It's not as hard as being the champion driver, but it's not as easy as just being a mid-level driver at the back of the grid. The role of being a second driver at a top team, it requires you to be able to pull off moves like that perfect slipstream. It requires you to be in the position to win the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, like we saw when Verstappen had his tyre failure. Sergio Perez was running second. He was ready to bring home a 1-2 for Red Bull. But look at that day where... Verstappen got a, an unfair DNF, you know, a DNF that wasn't his fault. You needed Perez in that position to still bring home some constructors' points for Red Bull and bring home points for Perez's own world championship. Unfortunately, that was the way Perez claimed his first win w- with Red Bull, but again, that speaks to his quality of being able to be there in the position to be helpful, right? And to be better than Bottas really was Perez's role this season, to be a more effective second driver than Bottas. And Bottas is probably the most efficient second driver we've seen in the history of the sport, converting Hamilton's world championships. Yes, they've been Hamilton's incredible driving, you know, pushing them over the limit, but Bottas being there to help with the development of the car, with the simulation, with the setup angle every weekend, being there in Q3 at every single opportunity to be able to defend from Hamilton when Hamilton's taking pole. All of those examples of the way Bottas has been able to serve Mercedes, you know, Those were things that Perez was expected to be able to do at Red Bull, and those are things that you need if you are Red Bull to compete at the top. And we've seen with Perez being able to execute that and the position he was able to put himself in at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, the final race of the season, really speaks to the development of Perez, which is almost the cleanest and the simplest storyline we can pull out of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix is that Sergio Perez did quite well, had a a good race. Of course, unfortunately, suffered a, a DNF, a mechanical DNF, very, very harsh, and, and to see him retire was, was really horrible, but still being in that position in qualifying and holding back Hamilton incredibly, incredibly well after Hamilton had pulled away at the start for Perez to be in the position later in the race, um, in the pit stop cycle. First round of pit stops, Perez stays out on his old, used soft tyres, defends incredibly well against Hamilton, uh, you know, driving at a really good pace, being able to fight just on the limit of the rules, I think Perez's driving was was pretty much fine in that situation. When your teammate is fighting for that world championship, you're going to push the limits of the rules. And pushing the limits of the rules, of course, a theme from the regulations every race this year. But Perez in that situation where you're defending to try and slow down the guy in second so your teammate, the guy in third, can make his way back close to the close to the battle. In that situation, Perez is doing everything he can to slow Lewis down, which, of course, then Lewis feels, you know, he's got this innate pace in the car. He's got this pace in himself as a driver. He's being held up. And the feeling of being held up, you know, it's going to make you more likely to be frustrated and throw around pejorative uh, descriptions of dirty driving by Perez. But I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that was directly in Perez's mind. I think he was just trying to do the best job he could. And I think he successfully did that. But in that situation, you know, Hamilton had been held up a little bit. Obviously, Hamilton had got track position at the start of the race, overtaking Verstappen to take a pretty commanding lead. 
Virtual safety car comes out after Raikkonen's crash allows Verstappen to pit at an opportune time and gain some soft tyres, close up even more. 17 second gap with around 20 laps to go. We think Verstappen's going to do it. You know, we think he, he has just about enough tyre advantage to make it work if he's able to do what Hamilton did at Hungary 2020 or what we've seen in Spain, Bahrain, France this year, where, you know, a two-stopper can beat a one-stopper effectively, where coming in on new tyres, you give yourself that gap in front of you that you have to make back on those fresh tyres. You have to go, you know, about a second a lap faster than your rival requires you to put in qualifying style laps in the race really high pressure scenario really exciting stuff that we've seen throughout the year being able to try and convert that pace to try and push every lap for 20 laps in a row use the absolute maximum of your tires that's what Verstappen was trying to do in that situation and while he was achieving that towards the end of the race and while the gap was closing it wasn't closing fast enough and it seemed like he would need a miracle to win the world championship. I think that was something that was said in the broadcast. You know, Verstappen's closing. He's closing. Hamilton's still in first, though. If we know anything about Hamilton, we know that his race control and his tire management is up there with the greatest of all time. You know, as much as Lewis was driving on relatively worn hard tires, it's Lewis Hamilton. It's not the same level of relatively worn hard tires that any other driver might be driving on because you're dealing with Lewis Hamilton looking to convert a world championship. The level of skill in that driving is just going to be hard to predict. And looking at Verstappen slowly closing down, you're thinking, oh, can he do it? He's going quite quickly, but not quite quickly enough. It looks like Hamilton might have this in the bag. Verstappen needs a miracle to win it, right? But then Verstappen gets his miracle. Nicholas Latifi crashes in the final sector. Big crash, good amount of debris. Unfortunately, I think one thing that has been lost in the discussion of the controversy surrounding it was the level of chaos and the level of debris at that corner you know while the crash of latifi in the final sector did have a huge influence on the outcome of the world championship first and foremost of course we're happy that he's okay and was able to hop out but also the fact that that incident was under so much pressure to be cleared and to be cleared correctly to not leave any amount of debris that could cause a puncture to get out the way of the safety car to get out the way of cars coming through after that crash had happened you know, not only does that speak to the quality of the marshalling, the quality of the facility in Abu Dhabi, but it's something I feel that has been lost in the discussion of the racing. So, yes, Nicholas Latifi crashes. It's a big crash. It looked to me just about on the barrier of safety car and red flag. I think there was like enough of a path on the track that all the cars would have been able to get through. We can look back again, like we already have at Azerbaijan this year, where Verstappen had his late tyre failure. And Perez was able to convert that win after a red flag with almost, a, I think, a three-lap shootout at the end, right? And with Verstappen having, you know, been able to come in right at the start of that Nicholas Latifi safety car, yeah, we see the safety car come out. Verstappen pits again, goes on to fresh soft tires right at the end. Now, Verstappen's on these fresh soft tires, but he's behind some lapped cars, and Hamilton is still out on his worn hard tires. Hamilton was already defending from Verstappen before on those hard worn tires, and now Verstappen's on fresh softs and he's got a safety car to close up the gap. It looks like in that situation, the advantage has swung heavily towards Verstappen, but purely out of the tactics called by Mercedes to not bring Lewis in, maybe they didn't have the opportunity to, he wasn't going round the pit lane at the right time to make it an efficient call. But Verstappen was going round the pit lane at the right time to make it an efficient call to come in on those new soft tyres. And that's exactly what he did. So that advantage of being on new soft tires at the end of the race and Hamilton being on old worn hard tires 
as much as it was a little unlucky that Mercedes weren't able to get the call in at the right time, effectively, that's just a, a good move from Red Bull to put Max in that position. Yeah, it's a bit lucky the safety car came out, but safety car can happen at any point. Safety cars happen all the time. And it's nothing to whinge over directly the fact that that safety car has come out. It's not something that has happened on purpose. But in the situation that it generated where Verstappen was on these new soft tires it had an innate pace advantage in the car and looked like he was going to be able to make his way very quickly into first position the solution could have been the slightly fairer solution could easily have been a red flag after the latifi crash where the ordering of the grid would be able to be set up you know in in the following laps to the grid tire strategies would have been equalized and we would have seen a, a you know side by side two lap charge to the finish line with hamilton and verstappen on equal soft tires right but just as much as people want to criticize Michael Massey for manufacturing a TV product, I think calling out a red flag there and, you know, bringing both guys into the pits to have a straight shootout red flag restart at the end would be equally as manipulative because the decision that Red Bull made to pit Verstappen under the safety car, they were taking a risk by doing that. You know, they could easily have had a problem with their pit stop or they could have had a failure. Verstappen could have crashed in the pit. You know, anything he could have been speeding in the pit lane. Anything can happen when you take that risk of a pit stop under the safety car. So I think Red Bull, you know, justifiably took on that risk and thought, you know, we're going to be in second anyway if we don't try this. They're in the situation of being able to take on that risk when they have nothing to lose. You know, at present, they're losing the world championship. And we know that Lewis is, is just going to bring those hard tires home if Max stays behind and just tries to take it at a normal safety car restart without the advantage of the soft tires. But what we saw controversially, I suppose, was the decision regarding the lap cars under the safety car, right? That seems to be where most of the confusion and most of the debate lies with this, is that while Hamilton was in first and Verstappen was in second, on the track, while the safety car was being organized, there were cars in between that were in the process of, or they, they had already been lapped by Lewis. They were called at a time where they were in the way. And under the safety car, overtaking lap cars can't happen because there's no overtaking under the safety car. So initially, when that first happens and the call goes out that lap cars will not be allowed to overtake, it seems like that has nullified Red Bull's chances. You know, Red Bull have come into the pits, put Verstappen on these fresh soft tires, and then suddenly these lap cars that would normally get out of the way under a safety car aren't going to. The decision that they were not going to be allowed past, I think primarily was fueled by... You know, the time that was left in the race, there were only two or three laps left in the race. Cleaning up the Nicholas Latifi crash would have been much more unsafe if you had these lap cars going around at full speed trying to get back to the, the back of the safety car grid and get back in their correct position. While you have the leaders behind the safety car, if you're sending around those lap cars, they're going at full speed. To have them going at full speed past an incident like the Latifi crash, it's pretty dangerous and it's not going to allow the cleanup of the crash to happen in time for the race to get restarted. In turn, that can be used as another argument where a red flag would have been more effective because not only does it give the marshals a fairer chance to get the track cleaned up properly, it gives them more time, but then, you know, it nullifies Red Bull's tactics advantage that they were able to make under the safety car. So I think the biggest note for the discussion is, you know, look, that there was no easy answer in that situation and whether the red flag seems like the easiest one doesn't really matter because it's not what happened and to look back on it now and say this is the most dramatic the most controversial f1 finale ever it's not accurate and it's not fair on on the f1 management to be complaining in such a way after the year that they've delivered i, I don't want to be you know the guy that's complimenting them for everything they've done they've made mistakes there have been some bad crashes of course there's been 
the role of the sausage curbs at Monza and, and Abby Eaton's crash in the W Series has been disappointing to see with some of the regulations there, but that's not something that Michael Massey's directly responsible for in every instance. But it's also important to note they haven't been perfect all year, of course, with the penalty consistency. But I think in the situation of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, I do honestly think it was a lot less controversial than it was initially made out to seem. To let all the lap cars pass, I think there's a point to which that becomes controversial in terms of, you know, Massey was obviously seeking to get the most important part of the race done and and to let all the lap cars pass may have taken too long and, and there would have been too many cars going around the track. Maybe, maybe that's why he did it, but maybe it was also just, you know, look, let's uh, let's give Max a chance here. But whether the race director should operate under the premise of, of you know, looking to give people chances is, is its own separate issue. And, and obviously neutrality and independence and, and universally fair applications of the rules should be what we want to see. But I think in that moment, everyone wanted to see Max have a go. Maybe he would have been able to get past all the lap cars after the safety car restart anyway. Maybe, the, you know, the lap cars would have all understood the situation and got out the way immediately. But then also those cars are involved in, the, in their own fight and they're all looking to make positions up themselves. So if the lap cars didn't get out the way, the racing got back underway and then some of those lap cars started racing each other instead of letting Max through, another incident could have happened and, and Verstappen could have been disqualified and, you know, Verstappen could have been... Uh, been taken out of the race maybe so ifs and buts are really what it's all about here i suppose but the challenge from verstappen was evident from the first race in bahrain all the way through to the final corner of the final race in abu dhabi what a year it was for max verstappen and he is the formula one world champion this year there's no no two ways about it max verstappen is the formula one world champion this year amazing for him and well deserved he won 10 races this year while at points it was in a car that had a natural pace advantage, there were also plenty of times where the cars looked very equal. The cars and the teams, while looking to maximize their advantage at any cost and to maximize their advantage in any capacity at any race throughout the season, Verstappen's team and Verstappen's team of engineers and, and the managers there and, and all the people at Red Bull ended up being able to deliver the championship challenge they needed to dethrone the Kings. And the thing with Formula One that we must remember is, is that, yeah, it, it exists as a show and it exists with a show that is going to come back next year with a Verstappen reigning world champion, a Hamilton who is out looking for revenge after the controversial end to the finale of last year. And it's also a Hamilton that's going to be accompanied by George Russell as his new teammate. It's going to be a Red Bull team that have together worked with a team driver pairing towards the world championship they're going to be racing against a Mercedes team that has a new driver and has a new driver who is potentially the most exciting prospect in young British motorsport. The way George Russell has been able to put in incredible performances like his qualifying laps throughout this year, especially notably in uh, Spa, in the wet. We all know that the best drivers are best in mixed conditions and they're best when the cars are equalized. And we saw with... George Russell's Bahrain Mercedes race last year while Hamilton was out with COVID, the huge level of his potential, you know, when he was driving Hamilton's car, he was in a seat that didn't fit. He was with a, a team manager, a team engineer he'd never worked with before, driving a car with settings that he didn't understand, driving a car with habits he didn't understand and modes and buttons that were all completely foreign to him, right? But now we're going to give George Russell a full set of testing. We're going to give him 
the end testing this year, which is happening at the moment alongside the Abu Dhabi Young Driver Test, some of the new drivers for Mercedes and uh, Red Bull, not only the younger drivers, but also the driver switches. So looking forward then, as we must for next year, you know, we need to have an eye for the future as much as we need to have a, a memory of the past. First, we must get past that element of short memory that is uh, kind of blinding us all when we look at the discussions of the issues. But we also must look on to the Bahrain 2022 Grand Prix. What's that going to be like when we get when we get to March next year? We will be in Bahrain with a new fleet of 20 Formula One cars and 20 Formula One drivers all looking to make a championship challenge. Everyone starts on zero points next year as much as Verstappen is going to be coming in with a motivated team. Mercedes are going to be coming in with a constructor's title and with more investment money. Red Bull are probably likely to be able to find a similar amount of money in new sponsorships and in terms of being a commercially viable uh, sponsorship. Being that they were able to convert that world championship and gain so much notoriety by doing that, I'm sure they won't struggle to find investment in that. Not only do Red Bull have that advantage of being the reigning Drivers World Champion and being the team that was able to convert that Drivers World Championship, but we also have the leaving of Honda from the sport and Red Bull being able to take over the Honda power unit and build their own power unit factory. To move from being a customer team to a manufacturer engine team should be an advantage for Red Bull. I think we could unfortunately see some more mechanical lack of reliability, I suppose, from Red Bull when they are building their own engines. We saw before with Renault a bit of a lack of reliability and with the initial Honda years with McLaren and, and even the initial Honda years with Red Bull, a lack of reliability. But now the Honda engine is so brilliant. We really hope that that's going to carry on to next year's successes with Red Bull. Next year, though, I think is, is where the real championship challenge between teams is going to occur because you've got McLaren building off a strong season. McLaren, of course, ending up losing that to Ferrari losing their constructors position to Ferrari at the end of this season, McLaren coming fourth and Ferrari coming third. Of course, we know that means Ferrari are going to end up with more money in sponsorship and, and higher profile sponsorships. But McLaren have also been on the up. I mean, they have been able to rise from those early Honda years where they were clearly at, at the near back of the grid. Such a brilliant team being at the back of the grid didn't really make sense. And they're back up there. I think both Ferrari and McLaren will reflect on a really strong year. Leclerc underperforming a little bit overall, you know, losing out to Carlos Sainz on points at the end of the Drivers' Championship with Carlos Sainz being able to convert that podium in the final race and three podiums across the year. Made it a really great debut season for Carlos Sainz in that Ferrari seat. Alongside Daniel Ricciardo making his McLaren debut this year, I think can be Maybe not equally happy. I think Sainz more consistently has been able to demonstrate a bit of a margin to his teammate and demonstrate high top 10 pace across a variety of tracks. But Ricardo is walking away, delivering the first McLaren 1-2 in, in nearly 10 years and, you know, walking away with a win and an Italian Grand Prix victory. So both teams have strengths to build on for next year alongside Red Bull and Mercedes that have just been engaged in this entirely uh, enthralling title battle. So... Again, looking, looking towards next year, I see only opportunity for Formula One. I see opportunities in the sense that Formula One can learn from its mistakes this year with the level of regulation and, and the level of steward interference, maybe in Jeddah and in Silverstone and Italy, of course, as well, where we saw the title challenges come together. And of course, Abu Dhabi. Look, the regulations need to improve, not only on the technical side and the engineering side, but there is a gap in terms of you know, progress to be made with clearing up the driving standards regulations, 
but the controversy is being stoked in some ways by elements of truth and a desire to improve the sport, but also by the commercial interests of the media, right? That must always be remembered. Before we end the show this week, I did want to touch on the return of Extreme E this weekend. They're going to be in Dorset on the south coast of England. Extreme E, the electric off-road series, um, most closely probably linked to the electric rallycross series. Extreme E's been really cool to watch this year. It's uh, also the conclusion of the title battle in Extreme E. Not quite as high profile as Formula One, but a growing sport definitely, and a sport that is likely to influence the future of Formula One, if nothing else, purely in regards to their technical expertise and the pursuit of... uh, valuable electric racing series you know formula e being a very specialized street electric track racing series extreme e is looking to be that off-road equivalent where they're delivering a racing product that looks nothing like what we're familiar with as formula one fans or as rallycross fans even they're delivering a racing product that's going to these super duper extreme locations normally dorset not quite as extreme but i think the track that they've built seems inspired by sort of motocross approaches to tracks and, you know, big jumps through the forest of Dorset. I think it's going to look really cool. And I'm really excited to have it back on English soil to have um, Jensen Button's team competing in that is going to be really cool to watch, you know, maybe a bit of a home field advantage there. But in Extreme E, funnily enough, what we have is Lewis Hamilton's team being second in the world championship to another one of his closest rivals, Nico Rosberg. Rosberg's RXR racing team is leading the Extreme E Championship, and they've won three out of the four Extreme E finals so far this year. You know, the event in Dorset is the fifth and final one overall. But Rosberg's team are coming into that with quite a clear title advantage, and of course, they're looking to convert that title for Nico Rosberg to be able to be that team leader. And actively, from at least his social media channels, it seems like he has been directly involved with the running of that team to quite a large extent. Hamilton, of course, attracting sponsorships and and drivers to his X44 racing team has also played an essential role in building that. But while Lewis is competing for a Formula One World Championship, he's obviously not able to deliver as much time to running that team as uh, as Rosberg is able to. And for Rosberg to be able to come out on top of that challenge, I'm sure will be extremely satisfying for him, knowing the extent to which he's influenced the outcomes of that team. And, And also, we must touch on the Rosberg team driver pairing. Johan Christofferson, who we can recognize from being the current World Rallycross World Champion, the four-time World Rallycross Champion now, Johan Christofferson is driving the Rosberg Extreme E racing car, and he's driving it extremely quickly alongside his teammate Molly Taylor, who's an Australian rally champion. One of the key aspects of Extreme E that it's looking to innovate on is that it has these mixed uh, driver pairs, where each team has a male driver and a female driver, And primarily what we've seen this year, which I think is the biggest, most important step for the sport in terms of that aspect of of, of integrating the gender pairings, we've seen that like it it really doesn't matter. I mean, when the male drivers are the Hansen brothers from Rallycross and Johan Christofferson, there is going to be a slight margin because those guys are world Rallycross champions and they are competing every weekend in Rallycross events. They are going to be specialised to off-road, you know, wheel-to-wheel racing where there is light amount of contact and, you know, four-wheel sliding around the track. Adjusting that to electric vehicles is going to have its own challenge, but those rallycross guys are going to come in with a slight pace advantage, and we've seen that this year with the way in which Christofferson was uh, able to gap the field. And alongside Molly Taylor, who is also beating not only the class of the other female drivers, but also a fair percentage of the men more often than not. The way in which the driver pairings work is that it's a little bit like Le Mans, just over a much shorter distance where both drivers have to drive one lap of the track and come into the pits and do a driver change. 
you end up with male drivers racing against female drivers, but you almost don't notice because to the eyes of the broadcast, they're just the two drivers for those teams and they're able to race on equal terms and to demonstrate that the quality of, of a racing driver has nothing to do with anything else apart from the direct physical and mental skill of the person driving the car. And to see that be equalised and proven over a season of Extreme E has been really cool. And we, we look to the finale of the event to hopefully deliver an equally exciting finale as to what we've seen in Formula One. And I'll touch on that next week as we get into more, you know, broad recaps of all the action throughout the year. But I just wanted to mention before the end of the show this week, check out the Extreme E finale this weekend. That's going to be a really, really cool event. Extreme E sort of runs a hybrid format of qualifying being worth points, but it's not directly the same qualifying format as Rallycross or Formula One. It is a timed qualifying session, but you get points for it which qualifies you then for a semi-final and a final format, more similar to Rallycross where the leaders are the final progress and it's all about being on which row of the grid. But I'm really looking forward to see the Extreme E finale. We also have Jamie Chadwick driving an Extreme E this year. Jamie Chadwick, of course, the double W Series champion. Chadwick is looking to, you know, in the same way that Liam Lawson is looking to diversify his racing skills, Chadwick is taking almost a bigger step from junior open wheel formats like Women's Formula 3 to something like Extreme E, which is a completely different powertrain system. It's a completely different racing style. You're racing against these top Rallycross guys where Chadwick is used to racing against these top Formula 3 and Formula 2 drivers. She's looking to adjust her style and to, to gain experience, you know, to become a faster driver by competing in these diverse racing series. Really, really cool. Hopefully we'll see JBXE, Jensen Button's team, hopefully we'll see them convert a win this weekend and uh, mix up the title battle a little bit. Unfortunately, though, it does look like with the relative form of the teams that Rosberg's team may be able to come in and convert that championship, which for Lewis to come second in another championship this year, of course, not as significant. It must be noted. It is not as significant as the Formula One World Championship yet. Unlikely to ever reach that level of status, but for Lewis to come second in another championship this year, back-to-back -back weeks against another one of his closest ever rivals, Nico Rosberg, got to sting a little bit, but Yet to be decided, yet Hamilton's team could take the win here. It could be a point at which he's able to come and motivate them to bring his spirits back up a little bit after a tricky week in Formula One. But hopefully the regulation can stay out of it and we can get some good racing in Extreme E this weekend. Okay, I think that's everything I need to talk about this week. Once again, thank you very much for listening to the show. It's been a real pleasure this term being able to deliver these weekly shows for you and, and get into the depths of all the best discussions around the world of motorsport. It's been a real treat. Over the off-season and the periods of testing and development throughout the winter, I'll look to get some really cool interviews on and hopefully give you the insider knowledge of the world of motorsport that I really value and, and the reason I'm doing this show, you know. With that, though, thank you very much for listening once again. This has been Episode 8 of the Jack Throttle Show. I'll be back next week with the results of the Extreme event and a more general review of the Formula 1 World Championship this year, as well as season reviews of the other categories coming throughout the winter and all those good interviews. That's all then for this week. I will let the intro song play you out. Thank you very much for listening once again, and I will see you in episode nine.